and Beyond the Bay, streaming live at kkup.org. The next show is Out of Our Minds Poetry Radio with me, Rochelle, a.k.a. Poetita. Um, But first, we're going to listen to Will Oldham. Uh, The song is Oh Let It Be, and this is from 1997. It's the winter's cold negative press What's the spring that's here and we To those who felt under wildest duress Treating freedom for a false sense of worth Let the love of their own sacred rights to the love of our people succeed Let friendship and a future unite And flourish in idea and Let the custom distinguish the strong Place riches in It's for excess that people do wrong And to liberty, honesty's name Let the love of our own sacred rights To the love of our people succeed Let friendship and Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Poetry Radio. The show is Out of Our Minds with your host, me, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. And my guest uh, is Amy Wright. And since Amy lives out in uh, Tennessee, I recorded this interview via Skype on Sunday. Uh, Here's a little bit about Amy. Amy Wright is a nonfiction editor of Zone 3 Press, coordinator of creative writing and associate professor at Austin P. State University, and the author of a number of books. But tonight we'll be talking about Creeks of the Upper South, uh, which is co-written with William Wright, No Relation. Um, If you want more information about Amy Wright, please visit her website at www.awrightawright.com, and that's a right with a W. Right is with a W. All right, so here we go. Here's some Amy. Tell me a little bit about your poetry, like what, where your poetry comes from. It's often, um, <clears throat> it stems from this thinking about culture and thinking about the land and my heritage. They're so intertwined for me because I grew up on a farm that had been in my family for five generations when it was passed to my mother. And so it's just always been a part of my thinking and my um my trajectory and and my roots so it's it's just always really important and especially since 
I, I'm from Southwest Virginia and, mm-hmm. you know, just the region is always coming into my work, whether it's thinking about the people who are there or the land that's being affected by the people being there. Right. Um, and so South, uh, Southwest Virginia, you said? Mm-hmm. It's not West Virginia. It's Southwest Virginia. Ah. <laughs> I get it. No, that's it's great. very close to West Virginia. I mean, we're, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. So. Yeah. My husband's from um, Southwest, Pens- Southwest Pennsylvania, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from, uh-huh. uh, from um, West Virginia. So I've driven through several times West Virginia, but you're in Southwest mm-hmm. Virginia. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's beautiful country through there. I mean, really, really pretty mountain. So sides. your family, so your family were farmers, or are farmers, or have a farm? Yes, my mother has. It's a Virginia Century farm, which uh-huh. means it's been in the family for at least a hundred years, wow. and you know, as traceable by deed. And of course, we can't really trace all of it, but it's it's been in the family for a long time. And and they had orchards at one point, and my grandfather had dairy cattle when I was growing up and then he retired into beef cattle farming because you mm-hmm. don't have to milk them every day and right. um, then my parents now farm and they they have beef cattle farming in addition to as has had to happen for all small-time farmers in addition to having another full-time job right so right and so so I think we come from similar places in some senses I'm from mm-hmm. California, but my family were more of agricultural workers, so we sort of moved and lived and worked on the farm. But I think we're coming from a similar place when it comes to poetry. I read through your book, Creeks of the Upper South, and I really felt a sort of affinity, that this sort of connection to the land and the connection to mm, the kinds of things that exist in the land that maybe people don't always see like flowers and and leave and sh- the shapes of leaves definitely and talking about things that are seldom seen i mean this book was written concurrently with another project that started where i was looking at insects and so <laughs> i think and even in um one of the poems in here orphelia fultoni you can tell you know i'm starting to look really closely at things that are seldom seen or seldom looked at very closely well can you read that poem for me sure The title of it is Fourth Answer, and it's part of a series of question and answers that we wrote back and forth in this collaboration. Okay. Fourth Answer. Astray Orphelia Fultoni, the bluest of all bioluminescent insects. Impossible to see except in the 2 a.m. dark, a glow, worm, not yet fly, cousin of the fire whose luciferin attracts moths to capsize on star drip like Icarus's night take. This lone light bears two lanterns to a stream bed, doubles their incandescent power to draw winged things toward them over a silk trap, give him strength to work his to-be gnat-free, carry her back to those pinpoints on an Alabama cave wall, see the constellation from the outside. <laughs> lovely (laughs) thank you came from a a trip we took to this Alabama cave and it's they don't have any lights they've had to regulate so that there are no street lights or it's sort of out in the country anyway but they still have dusted on lights and things like that but they've regulated so there aren't any out there and so Mm -hmm. you can not only see the sky much better and the stars but alongside this trail on the wall where it's moist still from the um, and there are mosses and things growing there you have to you can look directly at them but it's like you can only see them from the I think it's the rods in your eyes from the Mm -hmm. angle to the side because they're such a faint faint blue but they're like you kind of feel like you're looking into the sky even though you're looking at a wall so it's, it's they're really very beautiful that's amazing. That's amazing. And, and in Alabama, too, it's, it's not something that you would think of, this exotic insect and, you know, just a small town in Alabama. It's called Dismal, Dismal Canyon. 
<laughs> Dismal Canyon. That's a great name. <laughs> it's not. But it's, it's actually a wonder and a, and a beautiful thing, but maybe the name keeps people away. <laughs> well, that's kind of good in some senses, right? <laughs> sure, sure. I well, mean, it has to be regulated because they're very sensitive, you know, to um, human interference. You're certainly not allowed to touch them and, you know. Right, right. We have some caves out here. Um, one of One of the parks that I grew up near uh, Pinnacles it just uh, received national status so it's Pinnacles National Park now and growing up you know we'd go to the caves yeah it's really fantastic Um, we go we'd go to the caves and there are these you know bats everywhere inside of the Mm -hmm. caves and they're so important and they're so beautiful Uh and you just part of part of me with the national park sort of status is very excited because it's about protecting things but on the same mm-hmm. part of it it's like oh now there's buses and tour buses and so many uh, more people coming through and it's it's really like um, um it's one you know i mean th- these are like the dual issues of protecting the environment but also promoting the environment for the sense of protection or something mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I understand. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, um, so yeah, that's great. Um, I wanted, so, so let's talk a little bit about, um, well, actually, no, let's not talk anymore. Let's have you read a few more. I really love your poetry and I love your voice. So, okay. Um, thanks. Yeah. Do you have anything tagged to read? I I had printed out several that I have. I've got the apple um, that's mm. on top of the stack. So yeah, let's start there. Um, or okay, the apple. People drank the apples John Appleseed Chapman planted during his Ohio migration to Marietta by catamaran. His scattered orchards slated to be hatcheted in the name of prohibition. Before the Women's Christian Temperance Union repositioned the hard cider nation, traded knockdown dragouts for blossom-punched pie safes. Cure-alls, they called them, rewriting the story of the vegetarian eccentric who once punished his foot for squashing a worm by throwing away his shoe. Wintered in a carved-out sycamore, outside defiance, likened his ways to a bumblebee's, lashed a sidecar of moss-cloaked seeds to his hollowed hickory canoe, Malus domestica from Malus civierci, wild sour fruit from the old world botanists have traced to Kazakhstan, died wearing a coffee sack, leaving a 1,200-acre estate, snake root and joe pie weed, trail centuries, first waft of seasonal shift in the swamp gas, death come to the luna moth he woke to find on his chest, silk soft dust of her scales, under fingertips, and himself bathing in Little Soddy Creek, losing his matte finish of pollen drift, a bobcat stalked piss, nubby crow's feet carpet in which he washed apple flex sized spears from prickled hands, looking into a night sky, stars not white but red, green white, flea bane colored. Yellow at the center with lavender edges, if he kept his open eyes fixed on nothing, his dust body wet. Your voice is really great. I love, I can hear the uh, accents. <laughs> yes, I, I tried to get rid of it in college, but no, it stuck with me. <laughs> that's great. That's that's the beauty of it. I never knew I had a California accent until I moved to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh and they said oh you're from California and I said oh (laughs) Uh, uh. Um, (laughs) that's what I didn't know I had one either until I went to college (laughs) that's great um so you grew up on a farm yes (laughs) what was that like for you it was great. I mean, we, uh, my brother and I could play. There were streams around and, and woods nearby, and we would um, just go on these adventures. I had a kind of um, Thoreau mentality that it really was possible to just go and, and live off the land and to the woods. If anything got really bad, like you could always just head for the woods. And in fact, that's what I would do when I ran away, when I would get mad at my parents or I'd get punished for something. I would just, you know, 
run off and, and of course you know I wouldn't stay stay gone long because it's it's a lot harder than it than it seemed in my imagination but even still I, I thought well if it was very bad I could always just live off the land yeah that's really great and so I mean you mentioned Thoreau and I had mentioned in the email that I really did want to talk about what does how does environmentalism or this concept or this this tagline environment how does it exist inside of poetry? I mean, do you have anything to say about that? Well, I think it's it's really a conversation that's happening in verse. You know, environmental poetry. It's um, it's an evolving relationship to the to nature because nature poetry goes back to the very first poems, of course, and and it's had to change. Um, as we got went from a kind of romantic perspective and you know appreciating this um, the fear-based sublime and then we moved into this sort of transcendentalist um, but then we have to ground it in reality and ultimately our reality has not, we have failed to see things as they really are for well centuries but even still we're we're not really looking at it um, unbiasedly and 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 so I think that's the key is, is that we really just have to see it freshly and um, not so much through our own lenses as much as possible. That was one of the reasons why collaboration was so helpful for this is because there's a kind of, um, it's not an entire dissolution of the self, of course, because you're still two people and you're working with it. But um, several people have talked interestingly about how a third self sort of arises. And just in the space of collaborating, another voice comes out of that um, collaboration. But I, I do think that it deflects the attention from the self because there's not just one eye writing it. And so I think that kind of helps to expand the point of view a little bit more. I see. That's necessary, especially with regard to the environment and environmental poetry, because it's it's really got to be about an ecosystem or an ecology, which is the community, you know, seeing ourselves within a community and not, at, you know, at the center of it. Right. But as one part of any. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino. Um, I'm going to play another song by Will Oldham here. Take the advice 
That track is so awesome. That's uh, Will Oldham, and, and the album is Joya, and this is from 1997. And that song is Be Still and Know God. And you know what? Amy told me, Amy Wright, the poet I have on tonight, uh, she told me to play this this album, to look it up, and I did. And thanks, Amy, because I'm in love. So let's get back to the interview with Amy Wright. That, uh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, it's certainly a, a way of thinking about it. Yeah. So I kind of think about that... Um, I was thinking about that when I was reading your poem, A List of Impaired Waters, um, because it's just mm-hmm. like this, it's, it's this, li- I mean, the title tells me it's a list of impaired waters. What does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. That means that something is happening to water around you, and you are the poet, and you're seeing this. Mm-hmm. And so, will you read that poem? Sure. Yeah. A list of impaired waters. Capillaries on the water body map, broken from Bacon Creek to Sweetwater, Ecoregion 67F, crisscrossing Ecoregion 71G, Bledsoe County, Bledsoe Tributaries, Alston, Anderson, Arno, Bagwell, Braden, Carroll, Collins, Cummings, Davis, Dyer, Eaton, Ewing, Finch, Gammon, Hickman, Howard, Mathis, Melton, Mill, Mitchell, Odell, Reed, Rutherford, Schutz, Spencer, Stewarts, Suggs, Taylor. Creeks, among others, namesaked for neighbors, nowhere to be found on cleanup, August 4, from noon to 4, the afternoon otherwise spent getting haircuts, writing poems about scuba diver-sized catfish in the Cumberland River, buying school notebooks on tax-free weekend, drinking transparent soft drinks with honey-sweetened pretzels, a bottle of narcotics dissolving in the valley. Too late, they figure, when they figure. There are things we don't talk about, bodies, and what they do sliding toward each other, greasy as candle wicks. The stink of mine drainage in the North Chickamauga, a knot of engine parts and spring-shot sofa cushions, the color of Pangaea pulling itself back together. <laughs> wow, that's so fantastic. I really love the alphabetized list there. It's, it's really great. Good, good. <laughs> Uh, I I read it to myself, but I thought, no, you know what? These are not my words. She knows them so much better than I do. (laughs) Those are definitely names of friends for sure. Definitely. (laughs) Um, You know, when I came back from China, I I came back to my hometown and I found out that uh, there was going to be, that Citadel Oil Company was planning a thousand wells from the end of my hometown all the way to the new national park to do some fracking Mm -hmm. and um and it was it was devastating i came back in around june and the vote was going to happen in november Mm -hmm. and i remember driving through all of that territory and just looking and watching and trying to imagine what the space would look like if there were one thousand wells And luckily, we, we fought. And, and in California, we do have the sort of comfort of, you know, the, the heart of environmentalism in some mm-hmm. senses started in this area. So, right. so we, we, we didn't have as much work to do as other places in America have, mm-hmm. have to do. Mm-hmm. But um, I was really drawn to this poem because I knew that if the fracking came in, that the waters where we were were going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And they're already gone because we're in a drought here. Right. But I was just, it was impossible to imagine. So what's going on here? I mean, what prompted this poem, A List of Impaired Waters? Well, there's the connection. Yes, fracking is definitely um, running throughout this collection in terms of the, um, that's the issue. But, But we're also coming from, the coal mining country, you know, Ah. in terms of the upper south, much of this land has already been exploited. Uh, The people and the cultures here have been taken advantage of for, you know, since, since we could take advantage of them. And so we just pushed, pushed them to the edges, pushed them further back and, you know, just 
took from the land, all of the resources that we could. And of course, it's not about taking and giving back at all. It's not sustainable harvesting of any of these resources. It's always just strip mining or, um, you know, just taking away and then sending it elsewhere. So they're not profiting, you know, from the, the resources. Like so many cultures, you know, all, all over the world when we take advantage of um, what they have, what the land has. Right. And so I, th I thought just these the list of names, you know, that these are the people who are being affected. And ultimately, um, there's a kind of um, current that's running throughout that's linking the species that are endangered, and especially amphibians that only exist in this particular region, fish and insects, and um, they really are native to these areas, and there are none in other places. There's just no other um, species. And, you know, they're being affected by this um, pollution of the waterways and potentially lost, in a lot of cases already extinct and certainly endangered. And I think that that's similar to the cultures that are um, being assimilated and integrated into the mainstream American culture. And what a shame that is not to be able to protect either the people or the um, habitats and the wildlife that inhabit them. Right. I think that's why I think this poem is so powerful for me is because um, oftentimes in environmental poetry, one of the things that I notice, and I don't, I don't think, I don't know if this is all considered environmental poetry, but I'm just using that because we were talking about the environmental poem. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things is that in, in oftentimes in environmental poetry, people are left out or people become the, the, the sort of hands of evil, right? Like the poem is about nature and the poem is about beauty. And mm -hmm. then there's a kind of projection of anger towards uh, humans for being part of that. Mm -hmm. But, but in fact, in this poem, which I think is very powerful, a list of impaired waters, it's, the people are in it because, as you said, it is not just a decimation of the land, but it's a decimation of the people that are in the land. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately just a realization of our participation in this ecosystem that's much larger and the ecology of it. And it goes to the very smallest, tiny, these insects and the way that they're affected. They are representative of us and the impact that's, you know, they're just kind of the, the, um, the avant-garde, so to speak. I mean, they're <laughs> the forerunners that are kind of feeling the effects first and that are showing the effects of it early to us. And then ultimately you know, it's the water that we're drinking, just like the oil spills are, well, they're coming into our bodies too. Right. <laughs> it's, it's just a matter of time. We can see the immediate damage on the marine life, but it's only a matter of time. Before it gets to us. Right. Just wanted to add that, you know, in terms of the, my definition of environmental poetry, mm -hmm. I, I pull on the um, eco-poetry anthology. They, they define it. That's by Ann Fisherworth and Laura Gray Street. And they say that, you know, not all poetry is environmental and ecological. Um, and, and the part that they're interested in is that poetry which evinces an accurate, and I'm quoting here, an accurate and unsentimental awareness mm. of nature. And so I think that accurate and unsentimentality, that's, that's really core to the, um, well, the reality of, of the environment as I see it, because you... It's hard to be sentimental about, even as the fields are beautiful around my house where I grew up, you know, you walk just a little bit further and, and there were mining in the woods. I mean, strip logging and, and um, you know, we were always sort of in fear, or I was at least, in fear of them just strip logging the, the mountains. So, mm. Yeah. So uh, can you say that again? Um, and I, I can edit it out. Sure. But can you say the, the quote one more time? Sure, and it's by Ann Fisherworth and Laura Gray Street, and they say that um, not all poetry is emotionally or ecological. Not all of it evinces, quote, an accurate and unsentimental awareness of nature and our relationship to nature. That's really great. That's really nice. Thank you. That, that I liked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's really important, personally, for me, it's really important that for my own poetry, when I'm writing about the struggles, and I usually write about the struggles of labor because I come from a labor background and mm -hmm. agricultural fields and, you know, all of that kind of fight. 
Um, and it's really important for me to say very plainly in the most, in the nicest way or in the most sort of poetic way that I can, that this sort of struggle is very real and mm -hmm. that you have to see it for what it is and sort of not romanticize agrarian life, not romanticize the kind of <clears throat> struggle of the farm laborer, like, oh, it's a simple life and therefore their life must be more simple and, and they can treasure it more. Yeah. But it's about seeing the struggle for what it is. And I think that that's really important to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. so. Good, good. Definitely, we share that then. <laughs> I think so. I was finding I was finding that all over your book. It's really fantastic. Oh, thanks. Good. I'm glad you found that. And you collaborated with William Wright. No relation. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> um, and so, what is? I, I know William can't be with us on this interview right now. Um, but uh, so, what? What can you say a little bit about William Wright and his work, and how you guys work together on this piece? Sure. He actually edits the anthology series Southern Poetry. Um, the Southern, there's a, several volumes, and he's got some from uh, Tennessee and Appalachia, contemporary Appalachia, and um, I, I can't name all of them, but he's got at least six volumes, I want to say. But if you just Google Southern Poetry anthologies, all of them should come up. Um, but so, so he did that. He's originally, um, he lives in Marietta, Georgia right now. Um, he's visiting writer in residence at the University of Tennessee Knoxville and he's his family has lived in this area um, on his mother's side so he came from here and then we had met at the Southern Festival of Books and he had published some of my poems in these anthologies and so our friendship developed and at some point he just suggested um, that we write this collaborative um, work together and, and we originally intended it to just be a chat book and it just really was productive area for both of us and it inspired much longer than a chat book so we ended up just following it because it it had a lot of energy in it and so then it got picked up by interestingly enough two presses so it's a collaborative book of you know by the authors and also the presses so <laughs> wow it's, it's interesting <laughs> Well, yeah, that's really great. I mean, you know, I'm finding I'm finding that in the poetry world, generally speaking, and the publishing world, you know, we're we're innovating and we're finding ways to work with each other and to move through publishing together because everyone knows that as poets, there is no money in poetry, and that's fine. Um, but but there are also because but because there's no money in poetry, we have a lot of freedom about how we can sort of exist in the world of publishing <laughs> well especially with small presses I mean we have different assets and you know it, it takes a lot of work and especially when there's one or two people at the wheel you know you, you oh, really yeah. need all the help you can get oh yeah so it, it's it's a wonder that more presses don't do it and you know who knows maybe maybe that's percolating and and they will be all right you're listening to KKUP Cupertino here 91.5 FM in the Bay Area. Um, it's time for the community calendar. Um, so there's a few things about the community calendar. One thing in particular is that on Thursday, March 24th in Hollister, in downtown Hollister at 7.30 p.m., uh, Professor Randall Horton, who is also the editor um, of a number of books at Willow Books, um, Aquarius Press, he's going to be in Hollister. There's going to be live music, and rumor has it that there are going to be artists showing up in Hollister um, from all over the place, and you're going to have some access to some really cool stuff. So that's March 24th. Professor Randall Horton comes to Hollister at 7.30 p.m. in downtown Hollister at Art Space. The other thing I want to tell you about is um, is the lineup for this month. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking with Iago Escura, who is the editor of the new anthology called Gazals for Foley. And we're going to be talking about that next week. And that's out of Inchas Press. And then on the 23rd, before the 24th, Professor Randall Horton is flying in from Washington, D.C. I'm going to pick him up from the San Jose International Airport. And he's going to come to 
KKUP and be on the show. So that's going to be in um, after next week, so in two weeks. And then at the end of the month, we're going to have Yesenia Montilla, who was supposed to be on last week, but um, some technical difficulties and we couldn't get it done. So Yesenia Montilla is going to be on at the end of the month. Randall Horton will be on on the 23rd. And Gazals for Foley, edited by Iago Escura, will be on next week. So let's get back to our interview with Amy Wright. Um, can you read the poem uh, MRDL, please? Sure, sure. MRDL. They scream the words to sediment, misread discretionary language regarding the use of averages to report levels of contaminants, maximum residual disinfection level, level of disinfectant added for water treatment that may not be exceeded at the consumer's tap without an unacceptable possibility of adverse health effects. Naked urchins chase an effed newt down a stream bed where eroded mountains move as granules. In April, a late freeze and low-intensity fire affect the southern gorge slope of Honey Creek in Honey Creek Pocket Wilderness, a 109-acre Class II natural scientific area, its mesophytic forest a mix of tulip poplar, eastern hemlock, basewood, magnolia, yellow buckeye, beech, maples, oaks, hickories, an exceptional water body, mouths open wide enough to drink it with their upset. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so what's happening? Tell me a little bit about what's happening with the waterways in this area and what this book is actually trying to say. Well, we're, I guess... This poem in particular is saying uh, frustration, is expressing the helplessness, is saying um, there are disinfectants coming into our waterways. Uh, obviously, you know, the fracking process, that's really happening now, and that's probably the most um, dangerous aspect. But we also have mine runoff that's um, been happening for, for decades. And so... Um, the the eft newt in this case is just that i mean they they're basically porous i mean you know they're swimming around through this water they're absorbing all of this these toxins and and so it's it's just this kind of scream against the way that people manipulate the language of this crime um you know, and, and they call, you know, the, there's this acronym, the MRDL, and there's so much that just gets swept under the rug. And, and is this acceptable? Is this not acceptable? Who's drawing that line? I mean, certainly not the newt. The newt isn't getting to draw that line, you know. So there's, and nor are the people who are living near these waterways because, you know, they're working too hard to be paying attention to what people outside and people in power are, are doing to the land around them. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, when when you look into the sort of kind of language that exists around certain um, uh, what would you what would you call these um, sort of. I'm sorry. Well, I, I think water rights. I mean, you know, just, just oh, yeah. think of think of uh, just how that word gives the rights back to the water, as if you know we've gotten so far away from that. I mean, of course they're privatized. You know, we take the water rights, but the water itself it doesn't seem to have any. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely. The language itself is almost impotent. Really well, I, I took, there's this strange, I mean, it's certainly not the language of traditional poetry. Um, no, and so no. To, to find it in, it's in italics in the poem, and just the word maximum residual disinfectant level, it's a direct quote from the Code of Federal Regulations right. that was published by the National Archives and Records Administration. And so it's, it's in use, um, and yet... I guess I like the ugliness because it contrasts with the beauty of the region and it's the ugliness of the behavior that in many cases is um, taking place there. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really great. I mean, I, this is kind of the stuff that I was working on when I was at University of Pittsburgh. I, I was, I, I would come across language about Mexicans because I am Mexican American and 
um, I would come across these terms and these operations and the sort of the ways that they classified people, the 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 skin color classification language, mm. and all of this other stuff, and it was so um, awful and also so interesting and also um, so impotent. It did nothing. It did it did absolutely nothing to name people in these ways. Other than to, I guess, put them in a file and classify them. Right, right. And so, and, and, well, go ahead. And to not understand them. I mean, there's that way of kind of circumventing getting to know them by pinning this label, you know. To right, them. and that's kind of what I got when I was reading this poem. Is like this this maximum residual disinfection level. It mm. it it is supposed to bring sort of some kind of definition. But in doing so, it does absolutely nothing except ignore <laughs> the actual thing. I don't know. It's crazy. Well, I it's, love it. <laughs> it's, it's scary. I mean, it, it's really scary to think, okay, what is the maximum level of disinfectant they can put in this water that will clean it back up, but that will not create health effects? And when do you figure that out? Right. You know? I mean, and, and at what point does it cross over and they say, oh, that was, that was too far over. The maximum was actually too far. Right. And then, and then you, you know, I think, well then, so, so the sort of activist in, in my, in my body says, well, then how do we get people with boots on the ground to stop this kind of thing from happening? And then you think about how people have to work and people have to survive and people have to live. And so there are no boots on the ground to really fight this kind of stuff. Right. So what do we do? We write poetry. <laughs> oh, oh Lord! I mean, I, I, I think the answer is to be more involved in in politics. It is to reclaim, you know, our voice in the government and and in governmental policies. It, it definitely is that. And so, I think wherever we can spare time, especially those of us with, um, you know, more uh, freedom, you know, we we have an obligation to stand up for the rights of those who who can't get off work. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, I think, but I think that's also, and and I didn't say, I didn't say like, so what do we do? We write poetry as if to dismiss the poet or dismiss the poem, but to say that if there is nothing, like you, you are a poet, I am a poet. If there is nothing else that we can do, we write a poem in order to sort of um, bring into the world the thing that we know. Well, I I think it is transformative, and I think that um, even as poetry has a very highly specialized audience, and so it's not always reaching, you know, these governmental agencies in in one case, and it's not always reaching the workers uh, in another case, and um, I think that it's transformative on an individual level, and I think that that does add up, you know, I think that... um, to a certain extent, you're using that energy, you're looking at the issue, um, you're seeing it clear, and you're realizing the importance of it and the need to act. I mean, it's also inspiring of action. And I've seen an increasing number of writers get involved, and especially as social media and networks expand. Um, I think it just raises awareness on lots of levels, not just to the poems, but to the, um, the effects of the poems and, and what our goals are for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really great. And I mean, this is the kind of thing I've been working through a lot with a lot of the poets that I talk to. And of course, it's it's an existential and probably a personal crisis, which is to say, like, how do we as poets and how does poetry as poetry affect change in the world? How does it transform? How does it move? Does it move? And are we just kidding ourselves? (laughs) Well, I, I think it, to use your show um, directly, I mean, it, you build community. And so I listened to your show with Patrice Vecchioni, and then yeah. I, I found her on social media and networks, and then I bought her um, Step Into Nature book. And I mean, I think it, it builds community, uh, you know, and, and so it helps us to, we're a kind of tribe, you know, we people who are interested in language and um, 
you know, we, we gather together and in our separate, you know, houses and in these cases, separate towns, sometimes separate countries. But even still, we're reaching out, we're extending this little thread of connection so that we know we're um, sharing something and ultimately uh, that accrues. <laughs> That's great. That's thank you. <laughs> I mean, community accrues. I, ultimately, what we're going to do with all these connections, I'm not sure, but the community is definitely growing. Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's what what it's about. I think that that you know, if you know that you're going into the sort of, if you know that that you have things on the horizon that you're going to have to deal with, to know that there are people who are part of your community is the most important thing. When well, you, yeah. It, I mean, it keeps you inspired. It gives you, you know, the confidence, just like with writing. I mean, writers need encouragement, you know, and so do environmental activists and um, people taking political action and everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you read the poem In Stars, please? Sure. In Stars. And it begins with an epigraph. Since the dragonfly spends most of its life in and around water, colloquial names such as water nymph and water peacock, water spirit, keeper of the fish, guard of the tubs, have cropped up. The last of these evokes images of dragonflies keeping vigil over small wash tubs in the yard. Snake doctor, pond hawk, calico pennant, checkered set wing, pass by the cove, Natives, a saying that lug of masked light parked by the field of battle, desperate to mate and plunge ovipositors into leaf litter, deposit eggs on corn dog grass stems. Anise backslashes over the creek bank in a tire swing, legs kicking air when hams cup her corn muffin bottom, topping its black lip, downy shins stiffening outstretched under walnut dapple. 7,800 racket-tailed armies launch at her feet. Compound eyes scan 30,000 directions at once for clean water where naiads will spend years undergoing phases, wings mere crusty bumps, until everything in their bodies tells them to climb a reed toward a sky that splits larval skin, causes them to take air in. Oh, Amy, this is <laughs> amazing. Oh, thank you. Thanks. You're, it's just really, really, I mean, it's so, it's so amazing that you can have, you could have grown up all the way over there and I grew up all the way over <laughs> here and we've never met before <laughs> until the Nonfiction Now conference and your poetry, it just, it touches my heart in a way that just, you know, is <sighs> fantastic. Thank good, you. Good, good, good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope you come oh. out to California sometime. Oh, I definitely want to. I love it out there. I've not been since I was in, oh gosh, sixth grade, I think, but it's it's beautiful. Well, you make sure you come and see me in the central Monterey Bay area because everyone wants to go to L.A. or San Francisco, but I have to tell you, where I'm from, that's where the real beauty is. Ah, okay, <laughs> good, good. Um, okay, are there any other poems that you want to make sure get um, some sound time? Um, I, for every bronze back is nice. It sounds has a nice sound to it. Let's go for it. I could read that one. <laughs> yeah, please. For every bronze back and jack pike, the land split into a runnel of tears. Lake bottom fine as clay, finer than combed corn silk. Appalachian basin saline, seepage salamander skin. Feet sink ankle deep into what could be buttermilk, aquatic worm nests. A hummingbird boat buzzes by, limbed with barnacles of limestone, drift grit, the past breaking water, hitting its circled wake speed bumps, airing earth, fiberglass Rorschach blots clung fast as snails to the bilge. Lung shapes, shacks, stumps laid pungent on a hillside, waft of innermost mulch. Woodpeckers describe what they've lost without the word habitat-tat-tat-tat. Draw an arc over a naked gulch, write the effects of erosion where leaves were, 
the landlord responsible, a foamy-haired domestic, the absentee kind, woodpecker's plaint wrung out in tub grime. To you about other than is there anything that you want to say that make sure it gets heard? Well, I was just going to say in terms of tracing this. Um, environmental poetry and, and how this particular collection seems to be in conversation with that um, poetic. Um, I was thinking about how in Emerson's essay, Nature, he says there is a property in the horizon which no man has but whose eye can integrate all those parts is the poet's. Mm -hmm. And I thought how, if anything, in this movement, because, you know, we need to be acting politically and we need to be getting literal text into newspapers and places like that and, yeah. and not, not always into this side um, car of, of poetry or this, you know, side conversation um, in the sense that it's highly specialized and integrating right. all of the parts, speaking across disciplines. I do think that's crucial and I don't know if it's only poets or if it's writers with a kind of bent for metaphor but um, there's a need an increased need for someone to integrate these parts because even as the different fields are specializing more and more we need someone who still has the holistic perspective who can kind of add them up and, and put them in conversation with one another too right and that's something that's really, I think, I think that I, I, I feel like I want to get closer to, like, how do we translate the work that we're doing as poets into the world so that it helps to define things for others and it reaches farther and it activates and it helps to activate that, that change that really needs to exist, which is political efficacy and all these other things that have to happen in order for us to, um, to sort of quote on, you know, say to save the environment, <laughs> you know, how do we do that? Are, are we getting closer to that? Do you feel like you get you're you're getting closer to that, or you see any examples of that in the world? Well, I I do, um, and I think first comes to mind is, is Tim Flannery, and he's not at all a poet, mm -hmm. but. Um, there are scientists who have a poetic bent and in the sense that they can um, use literary devices and use metaphors to um, to explain things. And I, I did an interview with Tim Flannery. He's the um, the author of The Weathermakers, famously, okay. and then his most recent title is Atmosphere of Hope. But in it, he talks about how he uses the comparison of us on this planet, being humans, the, the human impact on the, the planet are akin to a, a kind of baby coming into consciousness and we are the nervous system of Gaia or Earth and so as we are evolving these increased technologies to sense um, you know the climate and the changes in the temperature of you know and all of these effects we're also um, kind of growing as a, as a, our consciousness but we're still really at the infant stage and so right. you know we still have far to go but just the the descriptive language and giving a comparison and a way for people to understand it, I think that's key. And whether we have scientists who can speak that way or um, writers who can translate um, scientific texts into that language, I think that's the real key is helping us to picture and see the reality of what's happening so that it's not abstract. Right. And I think, and, and also like for my end, one of the things that I'm working on, you know, is, is trying to find ways to sort of um, inform those who I can that this sort of uh, sort of lifestyleism or the 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 concept that if we purchase things in a certain way or we buy things or we or we sort of follow a certain sort of tribe in one direction in relation to consumerism, if we do that, we're we're making change in the world, which I think is something that is very idealistic and, and happens a lot with young people, but that in fact the real change comes from us using our political voice to, not only our political voice, but using the knowledge that's available to us to be able to understand how to really change environmental issues or labor issues not just follow a trend because it's a trend on Facebook or it's because right. it's a trend somewhere, but to actually sort of figure out a way to, um, to activate change 
that doesn't require us to consume a new product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does that sound, does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's something, I mean, I know that I see that with my, with my cousins and my friends and my younger, and, and when I was teaching the younger students who said, well, if I just buy these things that have this little label on it, then it's better. And in some senses, that's true, but in other senses, not necessarily. And well, so, yeah. it, it's, it's actually one of the solutions in Atmosphere of Hope that he's talking about is mm-hmm. investing in new third-way technologies where we sequester carbon in different ways. So we use, um, say, biochar as something that can be used to store carbon. And we've got all this mm-hmm. loose carbon in the atmosphere, and there are ways to bring it down and, and mm-hmm. potentially store it in, in different... So, so that is creating a new product on, on the one hand, but ultimately that's only one part of the solution. He begins with reducing it. That's what we right. need to do first is reduce it. Well, we've created a, a paradigm, and it's it's going to take a, a, a huge shift um, in, in order to change things. So you know, we're but the way that we're going along isn't working. So it you know, you really have to wrench in there and kind of change it. And you know, people are reluctant to change. I mean, that that's just probably human nature. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I think that's true. I mean. I- I don't know. I don't mind change, but I think I have, I I think I've been wrenched into lots of different situations that I feel like, okay, well, change is coming. So Mm -hmm. I can almost see it on the horizon, but (laughs) I I think a lot of people can't. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. anyway, Amy, it's been really amazing talking with you. Oh, thanks. It's been great talking to you too. Super awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, you know, I didn't mention the, um, the names of the presses. Oh, please. Um, the, the ones who are collaborating, um, it's Unicorn Press and Jakar Press. Okay. Tell me a little bit about All right. So you're listening to KKUP Cupertino here on 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. Uh, what you're listening to tonight is community-supported radio. That means we don't get any money from anyone except for those of you listening. So if you're listening online, you should definitely find a way to become a member of KKUP. And if you're listening on your radio, you're in your car or whatever, you can give us a call here at the station, 408-260-2999 or 831-255-2999. All right, I'm going to play you out with some music. Um, We've been playing Will Oldham tonight from his album Joya, which is from 1997. So here we go.
my car, splash to your memory.